Have you ever had the experience where you're recalling an event that happened and maybe you hear it from two different people and it sounds like a completely different thing because of those various perspectives? Part of the reason I asked Eric and Paula to share their story was not just so that we could get to know them. I wanted you to hear their story of how they met and got married because when you hear them tell their story, first from Paula's perspective and then from Eric's perspective, there's two very different perspectives on how they ended up together. Well, that's an important example that we're going to need to help us to understand a somewhat difficult teaching that I think God has for us today. So keep that example in mind as we uh, launch off into our second sermon from the book of First Peter. We're doing a series on the life of Peter. And during the school year especially, we're focusing on what he wrote in the book of First Peter. Last week, we introduced Peter. Uh, and Peter, we saw his name means rock. And what that really meant is that God was going to transform him and did transform him from being a stumbling block to being a rock-solid Christian. And what God did for Peter is the exact thing he's promised to do for each one of us who are believers in Jesus. That despite our flaws, despite our failures, despite our baggage, God has promised that he will root that stuff out of our life and over time transform us into something beautiful and amazing that only he could take credit for. Well, last week we met Peter. This week we have the opportunity to be introduced to ourselves. What I mean by that is that we have a chance to see ourselves the way we are being addressed by God. Who it is that Peter is writing to and what is it about us that stands out? So if you have a Bible, it would be great for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you use one of the Pew Bibles, it's page 980. 1 Peter chapter 1. Because we're still doing introductions, we introduced Peter last week. This week we introduce ourselves. We're still in verse 1. And last week we made it through a whopping six words. Uh, this week we're going to get through a few more words, but... Not many. <clears throat> we're in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to be looking at the second half of the verse. There Peter writes, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And here Peter is introducing who he's writing to. <clears throat> now, of course, when Peter was writing... He's writing to some specific people who live in these specific provinces. But we understand that because this is the Word of God, what Peter was doing in his own context is not the ultimate expression of what's going on here. What I mean is, this is the Word of God, meaning this is God speaking to us today. We're not eavesdropping on a conversation, we're participating in the conversation. And this could very easily say, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Hong Kong, Paris, Grand Rapids. This is God's word to us today. And if you're a believer in Jesus, wherever you are geographically or historically, this is God speaking to you. 
And what is it that he says about us that we need to know about ourselves? Well, there's two key words that he uses to introduce us. Two key words as to who we are as God is going to speak to us through the book of 1 Peter. The first word is the word elect. To God's elect. Now the word elect means to choose. That's why in verse 2 it says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God's elect are those that God has chosen. If you are elected at school to the student council, you've been chosen by your peers to serve on the student council. If you take certain electives, those are classes that you have chosen to take. When we are called God's elect, it means that God has chosen us to receive salvation. That we are those who have been chosen by God. Now, almost every Christian that I know, when they come in contact with this idea, this idea that we are the elect, or a doctrine that we sometimes called election, or a doctrine sometimes known as predestination, it always uh, raises questions and is something that can be, for almost every Christian, very difficult to wrap our minds around. How is it that God chooses us? Don't we choose God? How does that work? Well, this morning, we don't have the opportunity to answer all of the difficult questions that the doctrine of election or the fact that we are called the elect of God raises. But what I do want to do is walk through an analogy that's been helpful for me in understanding how election works. Namely, specifically, how it is the interplay between being the elect and yet choosing of our own free will. How is it that there is this belief about God choosing us, yet also this idea that we choose God? How does that work? Well, there's an analogy that's been helpful for me in understanding, and I'd like to share that with you. And it has something to do with why we asked Eric and Paula to share their story. Consider again the story that Eric and Paula shared about how they ended up together. When I asked Paula the question, how did you meet Eric? You heard her response. Her response was, well, I'd known him for a long time. I had no interest in him, but I knew he was interested in me. But at some point, my heart began to change. I began to uh, have feelings for him. I began to, she was approached by coworkers saying that, that you should consider Eric. And at some point, she realized that she did love him, that she did want to be with him, and she made the decision to accept his offer uh, to date and then finally to get married. Well, when you listen to Paula tell her story, that's her perspective. It's a very valid perspective on how they ended up together. When we asked Eric the question, how did you end up with Paula? You heard a very different perspective. His perspective was, well, for four years, I, I pursued her. For four years, I knew this was the girl that God had for me. And I kept trying different ways. I mean, really, praying together? Oh, man, that's a good one. <laughs> different ways to, to get her to see this. And he continued to pursue her. Now, when you listen to Eric tell his side of the story, he's got a different perspective. But it's equally valid. 
We don't sit up here and say, okay, well, who was right and who's wrong? Was Paula's perspective right or Eric's perspective? We don't say that. Instead, what we say is, here's one event, them becoming married, which when viewed from Paula's perspective, sounds different than when viewed from Eric's perspective. And we're willing to accept that this one event, their marriage, can be looked at from different angles. And when you look at it from different angles, different language is being used. The same is true with salvation. Take, for example, Peter's relationship with Jesus. If we had Peter here and asked him the question, how did you become a follower of Jesus? Well, what would Peter say? Well, fortunately, we know the answer to that question because it's recorded in John chapter one. In John chapter one, we're told the story of how Peter became a follower of Jesus. It says the next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John the Baptist had said and had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. How did Peter end up being a follower of Jesus? Well, from Peter's perspective, it's kind of like he got set up on a blind date. Andrew comes back. He's met Jesus. He finds out that Jesus is the Messiah. He asks Jesus, where are you staying? Can I come and follow you? Can I learn more about you? When he discovers that Jesus is the Messiah, first thing he does, he goes to Peter and he says, I have found a guy you have got to meet. See, Peter's like, all right. Goes with Andrew, meets Jesus, listens to Jesus, and becomes a follower of Jesus. That's Peter's perspective on how he became a follower of Jesus. It's a very valid perspective. From his point of view, that's how it happened. But what if we were to ask Jesus? Jesus, from your point of view, from your perspective, how did Peter end up as a follower of you? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess at the answer because Jesus has given us his perspective on how Peter became one of his followers. Same gospel, Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus is talking to Peter and his other uh, 11 disciples, and he says this to them. I no longer call you servants, that's Peter and the other 11, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now catch this statement. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. From Jesus' point of view, from his perspective, no, it wasn't that Peter chose him. It was that Jesus chose Peter. That Jesus says, look, I called you to be one of my followers. 
Now, just like we're willing with Eric and Paula not to ask the question, who's right and who's wrong, but instead recognize this is two different perspectives on the same event, so too with Jesus and Peter, instead of asking the question, well, who's right and who's wrong, it's better to accept that from Peter's point of view, he chose to follow Jesus. And from Jesus' point of view, he chose Peter to be his follower. The same is true for you, if you're a believer in Jesus. Maybe your testimony is something like, well, I, I didn't know anything about Jesus, and I had this friend who was uh, crazy about Jesus and always talking about Jesus and kept nagging me and inviting me to come to a Bible study and to go to church, and finally, just to get her off my back, I agreed to go. And then I showed up, and the people that I met at the Bible study, they weren't as crazy as I thought they were going to be. They were nice, genuine, authentic people, and they began to pray for me, and things began to happen in my life, and, and I began to read the Bible, and, and all of a sudden, I began to be intrigued by this Jesus person, and the more I learned about him, the more intriguing he was, until one day, I finally, I just decided, you know what? I just, I just gotta, I just gotta go. I just gotta do this. I've just gotta make this decision, and I decided on that day, I wanted to be follower of Jesus. Maybe your testimony is something like that. That's a very valid, that's a great testimony. But what if we asked God for his perspective on how it is that you came to be a follower of Jesus? Well, what God would say is, is that I loved you from before you were born. I knew you. I chose you. I pursued you. I revealed myself to you. I called you to myself. That too is a very valid perspective on this one event. My point is, we know examples like this when it comes to marriage. We know many people who when you ask them to tell their marriage story, it sounds very different when the wife is telling it from when the husband is telling it. It doesn't mean that one of them's right and the other's wrong. It doesn't mean that they don't understand what's going on. What it means is this one event can be viewed from two different angles, and from those two different angles, different language is going to be used. So it is with salvation. When we speak about being the elect, what Peter is doing is simply telling our salvation story from God's perspective. He's not forgotten that we chose to believe. He's not ignoring that fact. He's not ignoring the fact that we made a decision to be a follower of Jesus. He's not ignoring that at all. He's just focusing on this story from God's point of view. And so when Peter calls us God's elect, he's telling us that in the book of 1 Peter, for the most part, our salvation story is going to be told from God's point of view, not from our point of view. Now, why would Peter do that? Why would Peter choose to tell a salvation story from God's point of view? Well, I have to imagine, again, taking Paula and Eric as our example, is that as Paula is up here telling her story about how she uh, didn't want to be with Eric at first and then fell in love with him, I'm sure it's got to be wonderful for her to hear that when Eric tells his side of the story, for him to say, I knew she was the one. I pursued her. I loved her. I was convinced that God wanted me to. There's got to be something wonderful about that. There's got to be something reassuring about that. There's got to be something comforting about that. To hear the person that loves you say, 
I chose you. I wanted to be with you. So it is for us as Christians. To hear God say to us, I chose you. I picked you. I want to love you. I decided to reveal myself to you. There's something very secure about that. There's something wonderful about that. There's something great in knowing that we are loved, not that we somehow storm the gates of heaven and convince God, please let me in, please let me in, please let me in. It's not that we somehow earn God's favor. It's great to step back and say, wow, I'm loved. I was chosen before I did anything. God decided to pursue me. God decided to reveal himself to me. And so Peter says, before we start on this journey, you need to know, you are the elect of God. You are chosen and loved by God. That's the first word he uses to introduce us. The second is the word exile. Exile. Peter says, you are elect exiles. Now the word exile means to be staying in a strange and foreign place, to be residing somewhere temporarily, to be a resident alien. The word is used in verse 17 of this same chapter. Glance down there if you will. 1 Peter 1 verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners. That's the same word. It's the same word in Greek. It got translated as exiles in verse 1. It's translated as foreigners in verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Peter's saying you are a foreigner in this world. Now, what does this mean? Well, let's go back to our marriage analogy. When Eric chose to love Paula, when he chose to pursue her and to ask her to marry him, and when Paula made the choice to accept that proposal, at that moment, she in some ways became an exile, if you will. You might not have heard it fully, but you could kind of hear the undercurrent when she said that when she decided to accept Eric's offer, not everybody was ecstatic for her. That if she told you the fuller story that there was some sense that some of her friends and even some of her family members thought she might not be making the right decision and that she felt some level of alienation from them because of that. That's what Peter is saying, is that when God chooses us and we choose to accept his offer, one of the results is there is a level of alienation that we can feel from the world around us, from non-Christian friends at school or at work or in the neighborhood or even in our own families. Remember that passage where Jesus told his side of the story about how he and Peter got to be, how Peter got to be one of his followers? John 15, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. In that same chapter, just a couple of verses later, John 15, Jesus goes ahead and explains, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. 
As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus' point is, and I love him for how honest he is, that look, you need to know that when I choose you and you accept, there's a downside. And the downside is you will feel some level of alienation from the world around you. That whether it be in where America is as a country, it may be in how you fit in at your workplace, it may be in friendships that you had before, but Jesus is saying, look, when I choose you, when I give to you the gift of salvation, when I bless you in this way, be forewarned. There is a downside. And the downside is some sense of alienation, some sense of feeling like you don't fit in anymore, some sense of going to school and feeling like, look, these people that I used to hang out with, that, that they're doing things I can't do anymore, some level of stress that I can't talk about things the way other people are talking about them, some sense in which in your circle of friends you just don't belong anymore, that it just feels wrong and different and like you're not supposed to be there, like you're an alien in your own family. This week I received an email from a friend of mine. She was talking about her relationship with her extended family. She told the story of how uh, one of her sisters uh, has embraced a homosexual lifestyle and some of her other siblings have embraced uh, atheism. This is what she wrote about her experience. I think my sisters and brothers will just always see us, that's her and her husband, as being hypocritical. Every time we have a conversation with the atheists, it always comes back to a conversation about God versus no God. And it always ends up with someone getting upset and relationships being torn further apart. It's only a matter of time before there is nothing left to say and the relationships will be severed completely. And every conversation with my gay sister always ends with, if you can't accept me and my life and my wife, then we don't have anything else to talk about. I don't like being alienated from my family. Sometimes standing up for what I believe almost doesn't seem worth it. It's easier to give in and not say anything and go along with the lies that Satan is telling me. I know that sounds bad coming from someone who is a Christian, but it feels like I have lost my family. It will always come down to choosing God or choosing my family, and it kills me to know that I could lose them over these situations. That is a very, very difficult situation. This is what Peter means when he says, you are elect exiles. There's a great blessing in the fact that God has chosen us, that God has pursued us, that God has poured out his love on us. But Jesus is honest to say there is a downside. And the downside is the world around you is gonna hate you. That there may be some level like this dear friend, for whom her sibling, she feels like she's a stranger in her own family. That she feels that somehow now she's the enemy. It can feel this way in the country of America, that as God has called us to faith, that suddenly it feels like we don't belong in this place. 
that we don't fit in with the, with the rules and the morals and the things that people are doing. It can happen at school where suddenly, you know, your best friends who you shared everything with, all of a sudden now you've decided to accept Jesus' offer of love and now you feel like you don't fit in, like you're a misfit, like you can't participate in all the things that you're doing. There's a sense of being an exile. Now there is a corollary to this. And the corollary is that if you claim to be a believer in Jesus and don't feel any level of alienation, Something's wrong. If you can go to work, you can go to school, you can go to family reunions, you can go to neighborhood block parties and feel completely at home, completely at home with those who are not Christians or those who are not walking with the Lord and feel like, this is great, this is my family. These are, my, these are who I hang out with. These are the people I most love to be with. These are my soul brothers. These are my kindred spirits. If you can feel that way and feel no sense of alienation, no sense of loneliness, no sense of being in exile, something's the matter. Your relationship with God is not what you're claiming it is. You say, wow, that's a bit of a downer for an introduction. T to be honest, it is. Peter starts his epistle by addressing us as elect exiles, strangers in the world in which we live. I love the fact that God is honest with us to tell us that to choose to follow me, there are costs associated with it. But you know what else I love about God? Is that even into the darkness, he always speaks a word of hope. The word exile is used three times in the New Testament, the Greek word. The first is 1 Peter 1.1. The second is 1 Peter 1.17. We looked at both of those. The third place it's used is Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were, and here's our word, foreigners and strangers on earth, meaning there was no place that they could go that they felt at home. People who say such things, who admit to being exiles, who admit to being lonely in this world, who admit to being uh, uh, an alien and a stranger, show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, their friends, their neighborhood, their workplace, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. In this, there are three words of hope that God speaks into our situation. They're the words of hope that the author of Hebrews gives. They're the same words of hope that Peter will give as we go through his epistle, and they are these. Number one, no exile, is ever alone. We may feel alone in the world, but God has called us not only into a relationship with himself, but into the community of faith. Jesus says in Luke 18, there is no one 
who has given up family and friends for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will fail to receive back a hundred times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is saying there is no relationship that you can give up that I will not give back to you a hundredfold. Deeper, stronger, better relationships with the people of God. Yes, it is true that often blood relatives or longtime co-workers or friends we feel distant and alienated from. But God says, I promise I will replace them. I will replace them with meaningful relationships in a new community that I'm creating. The second word of hope that God speaks to us is that this world is simply not our home. The reason we don't feel at home here is because it's not home and that heaven is coming and that God is very clear that our light and momentary troubles, they are troubles and they're difficult. But when seen in the perspective of what's coming, Jesus says they're not worthy to be compared to what you're going to experience. They're not worthy to be compared to what's coming. Yes, there is rejection. Yes, there is exile. Yes, there can be loneliness. Yes, there can be that feeling of alienation. No one's trying to downplay that. But what God is saying into the midst of that dark situation, the word of hope is, look, you have no idea what's coming. If this is your home, you won't enjoy that. And that is so great and so amazing that you need to follow it. The third word of hope that God speaks to us, and this is the most important one of all in that Hebrews passage, and he's going to say it to us time and time again in 1 Peter. Is that separation from the world means closeness to God. God's not ashamed of those who feel like aliens in this world. Instead, he draws near to us. The reason why a woman who's engaged to be married doesn't usually walk around in a depressive state even though she's going to experience some level of separation from her friends and from her family is because she's not focused on what she's losing. She's focused on what she's gaining. And that the joy of this husband that has come into her life, yes, there is pain. There is pain associated with the fact that friendships are going to change because of this marriage. That relationships with family are going to change because of this marriage. And there is some sadness with that and no one denies that. But the reason she's excited to get married is because of who she's getting to have a relationship with. And at the end of the day, God says, you will never walk through that alienation by yourself. You and I will do this together. The friend who sent me the email that I shared with you uh, about the struggles with her extended family, I wrote her and said, I think this sermon this week might be for you. <laughs> and so I sent her the sermon ahead of time and just said, I'd love to know uh, how God might speak to you through the sermon, either as you read it now or as you listen to it on Sunday morning. She sent back an email and this is what she said. For a long time we were dealing with this alone. But we have decided that talking about it with our Christian friends and family is helpful. And we don't want to have to bear the burden alone. We know God wants good for us. By experiencing this great pain, it has allowed us to experience joy in feeling the reality of God. 
We know that as Christians, we are not promised a life without pain or sorrow. But we are promised a heavenly father who knows our pain and longs to hold us tight and comfort us. So for now, we just rest assured in God's promises, especially in the times that we doubt him and feel it is not worth the fight anymore. That, my friends, is God speaking to us through her experiences. That's exactly what God wants you to hear. I'm thankful that he's honest with us, that being chosen is absolutely wonderful. It's like being pursued by somebody who loves us, who wants to be with us. There's something so reassuring, something so refreshing, something so secure in knowing that God has pursued us, that God wants to be in a relationship with us. But there is a downside. Our relationship with God will sever, in many cases, relationships with others in this world. But into that darkness, God speaks this word of hope. Do not be afraid. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. There is nothing that you can give up in this world that will be as great as what you're getting in return. Let's pray together. Father, who are we that you should pursue us? Who are we that you should chase us down? That you should keep coming after us time and time again? That you should pursue us with your irresistible love? God, we've tried to walk away, we tried to turn away, but yet, Lord, you keep coming after us. You want to bless us, you want to pour out your life and your love upon us, and God, we thank you for that. Lord, I do thank you for your honesty. Jesus, thank you for telling us that we were going to go through these things. Thank you for telling us ahead of time so that we're not surprised. But Lord, right now, I, I do want to pray that you would speak a word of hope to those of us in this sanctuary who are feeling like aliens, feeling like we just don't belong, feeling like we don't fit in with the friends we used to run around with, that we don't fit in in the country in which we used to consider our home, that we don't fit in at the workplace in which we've poured in so much time and effort. Lord, I pray that you would speak a word of hope to those right now who, like my dear friend, are feeling cut off from family members, who are feeling like this entity that was so close to them that they have to, they've had to choose you over them. Lord, right now, would you speak a word of hope? Would you let them know that you do love them? Lord, would you be like a spouse who says to us, yes, I know you have to give all that up, but you won't regret it. God, we thank you for this word. Bless it to our souls. Encourage us with it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.